Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we're going to have a discussion, um, and then uh, we're going to open it up to Q&A after about 30 minutes. Um, and um, as you probably know or may not know, this is being filmed by C-SPAN. So um, thank you very much, C-SPAN. <laughs> and um, also, please ask a lot of questions and be as provocative as you want to be so that we can have a lot of uh, very interesting conversations and um, that will be great for television. So um, uh, my name is Ginny Vabdo. <laughs> I'm a, a senior fellow at the Harari Center. And with us today, we're very honored to have Joyce Karam, who is the uh, Washington correspondent for El Hayat and who is really one of the most insightful journalists, I think, writing today um, for any media, particularly for the Middle East media. And I think that she has a very interesting and very truthful um, take on all sorts of issues in the region, but also what happens in Washington. And she was, if you read any of her coverage about the Iran nuclear deal, I always read it because it was absolutely spot on. Thank you. <laughs> and so um, we're very honored today to have her with us. And um, so we're going to begin, and um, they're going to start taping, I guess. So thank you for coming. Well, thank you, everyone. Good to be here. And I have to say, uh, reading Geneve's book, uh, you know, over the week and being interjected with a terror attack um, in Turkey, another attack in Egypt, uh, ISIS taking Palmyra, it really brought it full circle. Um, I think most of you have been in Washington, follow the event in the Middle East, but I rarely find a sense of realism and a touch, a real touch from the region that Geneve brings uh, into this book. Uh, I think uh, what I liked about it is it, it just paints a very good big picture of what's happening in the Middle East. There is no nonsense. There is no uh, wishy-washy talk about the future of the liberal democracies in the region. You don't get this you really get what's happening in the region right now. A complex understanding of uh, the dynamics that you, that, I mean, I'm shocked they're always missing in the conversation in Washington. Uh, how many of us have heard about Salafism in the last uh, uh, year in the debate in Washington? Not, not, not many, and, and, and it's, it, it is a major part of uh, what's going on. I mean, uh, it took Ginny four years for, uh, to research and write this book. I, I, reading it, I saw, you know, I grew up in, uh, near Tripoli, Lebanon, and she actually went there. She went to Arsal, she went to Baghdad, she went to Kuwait, she went to Bahrain, and that's where I think this book is different. Uh, it's also, you know, refreshingly very honest and candid over realities in the region that we try to spin, we try to censor here in D.C. It tells you who is paying who, which cleric is sitting in uh, Baghdad or Tripoli and uh, spreading uh, hateful rhetoric on Twitter. This is a debate that Definitely, we need to happen in the region. And I think uh, to understand 
the post-Arab Spring uh, Middle East, this is a truly must read. Congratulations on, on, on a really phenomenal book. Um, and I will only take 30 minutes, then we will go to you for questions. But <clears throat> I will start, Geneve, by asking you, I mean, at which point watching the Arab Spring you said to yourself, this is not Eastern Europe. This is actually uh, not the myth that we all believed in here in Washington, D.C., and in places like Syria, for example, where, is, where it is an open inferno now. Do you think if the regime had acted differently in the beginning or if the opposition didn't get arms, things could have been different and we wouldn't be at this uh, sectarian upheaval we're seeing today? In Syria? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that you raise a, a, a broader issue which is really important, and that is that you know a lot of the discussions in the beginning, of course, everyone was very optimistic. And um, you use the diplomatic term that my book is honest, but a lot of people always say that I'm too cynical and that you know every time I give a lecture about the Middle East, everyone says, oh, no, now we're going to kill ourselves. But um, because I'm, I'm, I generally am pessimistic about the region, but I think that that it's more of sort of a realism. And so when the Arab uprising started, I think that you know there was far too much um, optimism about the outcome. And given all the different factions, whether they're religious, political, I mean, it was obvious that mm -hmm. this was going to take generations to sort out in the beginning. And I think in the case of Syria, um, it, it, like most uprisings, and, I, and what's important, I think, is to, to talk about the similarities. Because if you look at Bahrain, if you look at Syria, if you look at Egypt, the uprising started um, all with the same goal, which was to oust dictators. Right. In Bahrain, it wasn't necessarily regime change. It was to create a constitutional monarchy, which is something different. But nonetheless, it was to improve the current form of governance. Mm -hmm. And so they all began that way. But unfortunately, after a short you know, bit of time, all the uprisings sort of deteriorated into you know, conflicts about religion, conflicts about politics, conflicts among Sunnis, you know, extremists versus more, hate to use the word moderate, but um, within the Sunni tradition, you know, how Islam was going to be practiced. And I think that the moment for me when I knew this was going to be something significant and different and violent was when I was in Egypt right after um, President Morsi had been elected, and I was interviewing a Salafist in mm -hmm. Cairo, and he said to me, what our goal has nothing to do with changing the Egyptian government. We're glad the Muslim Brotherhood is in power, but our objective is to redefine how Islam is practiced. Right, and, and, and that actually also comes out very vividly and very strongly in, in the book how how different the Salafists are playing uh, uh, the game here. Uh, I mean, given what's happening in Egypt particularly, do you see them uh, being the more dominant sort of, you know, quote unquote, Islamist uh, force uh, in the future? Uh, and are we, I mean, as, as Arabs, are we predestined to this cycle between uh, authoritarianism and, and uh, sectarianism? I think that in terms of the Salafists, it really depends on what country we're talking about. Because the Salafists in Egypt. Egypt. In Egypt. In Egypt, yes. I mean, obviously, 
they, for the most part, and this is generally speaking, and I don't want to simplify it too much, but they went from being sort of part of a, what we call in Arabic a dawah movement mm -hmm. into being politicized because there was an opportunity. So when the, when the collapse happened, when Mubarak was ousted from power, they became much more politically active that they had been. They ran in for seats in parliament. So, and that was something that hadn't happened on that scale before. I think now, um, I'm actually going to Egypt tomorrow to interview Salvas, but I, I think so I, I could probably answer this more effectively in a week from now. But in any case, um, I think that what happened after the Arab uprisings is that it empowered them in some cases. Some of the Salafists were co-opted by the government. And I think that more or less that's still the case. Do you but see them ever going mainstream given how literal their interpretation is? No. Of no, I don't think so. And I think that there are enough openings within religious interpretation. And you know, there's a term now that's always used, the democratization of religion, which basically means that there's a lot of competition now for the religious message. Mm -hmm. There are Salafists. There are extremists. There are so, and they're part of this discussion. And there's room for, there's an opening for different interpretations. So I don't see that they re are retreating. I think if anything, they'll become more prominent. Um, you, you also talk a lot about, you know, post-Saddam uh, Iraq, Iran's role, uh, the, the, the past uh, resentment we had from Arab Shia towards Iran and how the rise of ISIS has really changed this dynamic. Uh, you followed Iran also for a long time. I mean, it, is, is Iran first winning today? Uh, do the paradigms of Iran and ISIS mutually benefit from, from each other in a place uh, like Iraq? And uh, what's, what's the future of the Iraqi state looks like? Well, I think, Joyce, you've written a lot about this as well, uh, Iran's role in the region. And I, we're probably on the same page on these issues. But it's clear when I did go to Najaf, and the first mm -hmm. chapter of the book is about the clerical establishment in Najaf, it is clear that they have a few objectives. One is they want to distinguish themselves from Persian Shia. So they feel that what's happened as Iran has become much more powerful in the Arab world is that people equate Persian Shiism with Arab Shiism. So mm -hmm. that's very important to them that a distinction is made. And I think another thing that's very important to them is that they feel that the Iraqi government has been co-opted by the Iranians. And they don't know what to do about it. Are they right? Um, it seems so. I mean, co-opted is too strong a word, but clearly, if you have revolutionary guards in the country, if you have you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, the Al-Quds forces, Iran's presence militarily, they have religious influence in the country, which began not from the Arab uprisings, but since the US invasion. Mm -hmm. Then of course, you know, Iran has a great role to play now in Iraq. And I think that for a lot of the Arab Shia, that's not okay. <laughs> and so, and on the Sunni side, some of the tribal leaders who are interviewed in the book, they basically told me that, um, and I met them in Erbil, not in Iraq, but they basically told me that um, they supported the takeover of Mosul mm -hmm. because they thought that 
given the choice between an Iranian-backed Shia-led government that was marginalizing the Sunnis and ISIS, they'd rather you know, cast their lot with ISIS. And that was quite shocking to me, but that's what they told me. But, but, but then, you know, we see ourselves going through the same uh, circle. I mean, before it was ISIS, it was uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're into Fallujah has been occupied and liberated three times. ISIS retook Palmyra again just yesterday after it was uh, uh, liberated by you know, the Assad and Russia forces uh, in March. It seems just, I don't know if it's just us or nobody wants to see the missing piece here or, or, or address it. Uh, do, are we, I mean, are we gonna go through the same cycle as long as this sectarian question as long as these sectarian uh, problems are not honestly dealt with? Unfortunately, I think so. Because the even if you dealt with, say, and Al-Qaeda supposedly is on the rise in con- certain countries now, but even if you dealt with the problem of extremism, I mean, it, it uh, in a military sense, and this is, I guess, the other reason I wrote the book is that you know, in Washington, I think all of these issues are sort of addressed through there has to be some military solution. But in fact, I think what we've learned over the last 20 years is that all these Islamist movements, whether they're extremist or not, they're evolving in ways that we can't control and certainly cannot be controlled or, uh, or affected by a military solution. Um, And because there's rivalry, I think it's important to explain that even though my book is about the Shia-Sunni struggle, there's also a Sunni-Sunni struggle and a Shia-Shia struggle. So all of this complexity and these conflicts that are being played out on the ground are sort of an invitation for extremists because then they can capitalize on one group versus another. And, And as I mentioned, even groups that, I mean, why would Sunni tribal leaders support ISIS? Well, ISIS was able at that moment in time to capitalize on their, the marginalization they were feeling from the Iraqi government. And mm-hmm. so there was an opening. Um, and, and, and back to Iran's uh, role in this, I mean, I remember, you know, in, in Lebanon when Hezbollah was just a, a small group in the, in the early 80s, uh, you know, uh, orchestrating terror attacks, but not really claiming them. And we, here we are at a point where Hezbollah is actually now publicly says it's, it's involved in Syria and in, in Yemen and uh, to a lesser extent in Bahrain and, and in Iraq. Um, what does it say about the I- Iranian policy in the region and has actually the Hezbollah model succeeded so that they could replicate it in other uh, places? Well, uh, that's a really important question because as part of this divide that's escalating between the Shia and Sunni, what's interesting is that you know, if you look at Nasrallah's speeches from, say, the beginning of the Arab uprisings, he didn't play the so-called Shia card. Okay, mm-hmm. and neither did Iran. Mm-hmm. Khamenei was talking about an Islamic awakening. He was talking about pan-Islamism. 
that this was going to be, these were Arab uprisings to fight colonialism, imperialism. But as of 2014, when Nasrallah made this big speech, I think it was in July, um, he basically said, you know, Hezbollah now is a Shia militia. I mean, and, and the Iranians, and, and that's, I'm simplifying it, but mm -hmm. that was his message when he acknowledged that they had boots on the ground in Syria after, of course, everyone, you know, there was overwhelming evidence that that was the case. But Iran has done the same thing, basically. Because of their military um, activity in Arab countries that you mentioned, they can no longer talk about pan-Islamism. They can no longer talk about being a state that represents all Muslims mm -hmm. against the West. And so this, I think, and this is what I talk about in the book, the reason that these speeches are important and the reason that these developments are important from leaders, whether it's Hezbollah or Khamenei, is the way it's perceived on the ground. Yeah. Because as you know, well, you know, Arab societies now are in a state of anxiety. Completely, I mean, you know, I, I was in Morocco uh, last summer and just average people you talk to there and they'd be, you know, we don't like uh, the king much, but we don't want to be Syria. Right. And uh, I, I think the trauma effect that the war in Syria had over the region, and not just Syria, I mean, you look, you look at Libya as well, it's, uh, it is uh, a step back for the efforts of you know, democratization uh, and liberalization in, in the region. Uh, but I mean, on Iran specifically, it's, it's I think a fascinating experience, experiment to watch uh, that, you know, coming from Lebanon again, that Hezbollah would be actually now is an occupying force, for example, in Syria, that the Hajj al-Shaabi uh, in Iraq, despite all what we hear uh, in Washington, no, it's not a, uh, you know, quote unquote, pure resistance force against, against uh, ISIS. And I don't know how we actually can get out of, of, of this now because this has become the new status quo. And the argument you hear repeatedly in DC on, on governance, on you know, human rights, but how are you gonna, how does this remotely resonate with what's going on uh, on the ground in, in areas uh, of conflict. I mean, do you see any hope for uh, a push for better governance in the region anytime soon? Again, I think it depends on the country. I mean, I think that in Bahrain, probably not, because the mainstream mm -hmm. Shia movement, El Wafak, has been completely isolated from the political process. Um, in Egypt, you know, where there is a very repressive government that now is in power mm -hmm. that's also not very inclusive politically. If you sort of go down the list, it doesn't seem very optimistic. Um, in Lebanon, I always think of Lebanon sort of in a different category, and maybe you disagree because <laughs> you spent so much of your life there, but um, I sort of look at Lebanon as in a post-sectarian era in the sense that despite the fact that, you know, that there are religious factions, all sorts of different political interest groups. Somehow the Lebanese, I guess maybe having fought 15 years of civil war, there's a social contract now in Lebanon where you know, Hezbollah is very important in the government. 
But people have decided, okay, basically, you know, this is a fait accompli, can't do really that much about it. Let's not kill each other over it. And the Syria effect. And the Syria and effect, again. right. That's terrifying, as you mentioned, that's really terrifying people because nobody wants to become another Syria. And, and, and how much the, the proxy war in the region, uh, you know, contributed to where we are today? I mean, you look, you look at Libya, for example, that there is a proxy war happening between, you know, the, the Sunni-Sunni aspect you're talking about. It's a regional Sunni-Sunni proxy war uh, within uh, Libya. You look uh, at Iraq as well. There is, there is a proxy war over there. So how, uh, how do you address this? Do the populations of, you know, Libya or, uh, or Iraq or, uh, or even Lebanon and Syria, do they, do they have uh, any willpower at this point to break out of this uh, proxy, war, proxy war that the region has fumed and benefited from uh, for a while now? I think it's difficult. And um, I just want to mention that as we're talking about this, you know, we don't want to give the impression that all of Arab societies are sort of engulfed or engaged in these conflicts <laughs> because most people actually feel vic victimized by the conflicts and um, they feel helpless. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, you know, as I mentioned, people feel a lot of anxiety. But what's happened to your point about proxy wars is that, you know, so you have these states, whether it's Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, jockeying for power on a geopolitical level. And that affects societies. And, that's, and some factions react to it. Some factions try to take advantage of the situation of the proxy war. But then others are just completely innocent victims. And I, that's probably the majority of mm -hmm. Arab societies now, is that they have to live in these conflict, conflicts, whether they're driven by states, whether they're driven by extremist groups. And they feel very helpless that they can't control the future. They can't even control whether they get a job or not. Forget about the future, or forget about their political future. And, and, so, and, and in a place like Syria, you know, the actual activists that started the uprising right. are either uh, kidnapped, like Razan Zaytouni now. Father Paolo has disappeared. Uh, you have many are now uh, in exile. And the new dynamic we're approaching in Syria is between after the, uh, or the soon fall of Aleppo is increasingly becoming between Assad and uh, ISIS on the one hand, and then uh, uh, Al-Qaeda affiliated Nusra, I mean, they changed their name now. Uh, but do, do you see this uh, dictating uh, the new narrative in, in, in areas of conflict where the two uh, extremes will, uh, will take over if, if these conflicts are not addressed. I, I think that, that that's the case. And, and if you look at, you know, in the old days in Egypt before the Arab uprising started, you know, if you remember, former President Mubarak used to always say, um, you have to support my government because the only, I'm the only alternative to the Muslim Brotherhood. That he, which he painted as an extremist group, which is not an extremist group. And um, so that was always the choice. And I think that that narrative continues. Mm -hmm. It just had, became more complicated. 
because, as you say, there are more <laughs> players now. But Assad played the same narrative in the beginning of the uprising, right? Mm -hmm. He said, you know, extremists are going to take over Syria, so you have to support me against the uprising because the alternative is worse. Yeah. And um, so I don't, I think that the basic narrative has not changed, it, unfortunately. And we have seen a pattern, and we've seen the direction it's taken. The only difference now is that there are a lot of different players than they were before on both, on both of these extremist sides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also enjoyed the chapter on Bahrain, uh, how you went there, how you describe it. Uh, two, two questions here. Had Saudi GCC not intervened, what would the situation be like at the moment? How real is the Iranian uh, role uh, uh, in Bahrain? And uh, we don't hear about Bahrain anymore. No, but what's true. at stake if the, the, the current uh, status quo continues? Well, I think that Bahrain, even though it's a minor sort of unstable state in the scheme of things, mm -hmm. um, which is why, I guess, you know, during uh, President Obama's administration, there wasn't that much focus on the situation of Bahrain. But I think if you look at the developments that happened there, they very much mirror the developments in other countries as it regards the Shia Sunni issue. And for example, as you mentioned, when the Saudis invaded, okay, when the Saudi, the uprising began as a Shia and Sunni led uprising. There were Sunnis involved in the uprising because they wanted to create a constitutional monarchy in, in Bahrain. Um, but when the Saudis invaded, what, three months, four months into the uprising, it was about three or four months into the uprising, it allowed the government to completely change the message and the narrative. So then it became Sunni Saudi Arabia and the Sunni-led Bahraini government against the Shia. And that extended to Iran as well. So then the government began this propaganda campaign on television, in the newspapers, which are run state-owned, that this was an Iranian plot Mm -hmm. that the Shia in Bahrain were part of to overthrow the government. Yeah. And that, and the Saudi, where the Saudi, you know, invasion came in, and as you point out, is that it helped the government advance this narrative. It's almost, you know, these self-fulfilling prophecies that right. we see repeat themselves uh, in, in the region. But, um, you know, another aspect that's just, as a journalist, it's it's it is close to heart when you when you start talking about Twitter, the level of uh, hate across the board. I mean, these people just really don't like uh, the, the extremist narrative that we see on Twitter from opposing sides. I mean, just last week after the fall of Aleppo, you saw the uh, pro Hezbollah uh, rhetoric was extremely sectarian on, uh, on Twitter. There was this video of a Hezbollah journalist going with the uh, flag and uh, climbing up to the citadel of uh, uh, Aleppo and essentially you know, declaring uh, victory. Just yesterday, after the bombing in, in Egypt, you saw people celebrating the killing of Christians. And these are mostly tweets in Arabic that, you know, maybe we don't 
we don't get translated much here in Washington, but you talk uh, in length about this, about the role of the social media and fueling uh, the, the sectarian uh, war. And what worries me is that there, we don't have the tools or the oversight to, to address it. I mean, how big is this problem? And your, your direct engagement with clerics that fuel uh, this hate speech, what did it teach you? Well, I think it's a huge problem. Um, and because a lot of this is being articulated in Arabic, it's difficult for people in the US to understand the magnitude. Right. So, and the reason I went to Twitter is that I was trying to, everyone always asked, well, how do you know that this you know, anti-Shia sentiment exists? You know, how, how can you prove it, right? So I thought, well, okay, Twitter seems like a good way to try to figure out the anti-Shia sentiment. And if you, and you know, as you saw, I mean, the, the tweets are so graphic, you know, that they're gonna grind the flesh of the Shia. And I mean, the things that are said are just horrific. But, but to your point about, is it important? I think it's hugely important. Because if you look, I mean, some of the people I profile in this book have 14 million Twitter followers. So even though in terms of methodology, and I'm about the last person to be analyzing the technicalities of social media, but um, I looked at it more from a substantive point of view. And even if you can't new scientifically evaluate the penetration of these messages, okay, who's following them? What, how does that affect what happens on the ground? I attempted to do that, not very, I mean, it's, you can't really, you can't really decide, okay, someone's tweeting about the battle of Kusser. Mm -hmm. How did that affect what happened on the ground? I mean, it's difficult to know, but if someone has 14 million Twitter followers, you have to assume that somebody is absorbing this material. And so I think, and, and, it is, and it's, it's, it's massive. I mean, you know, if you have millions of followers, and the, I think the other thing that's dangerous about it is that it's reinforced by different forms of media. Right, not the mainstream media, but, no, but right. it, it does yeah. marginalize, you know, people like uh, like me, like you know, uh, even Al Jazeera, Al, Al Arabiya, and others. We're trying. Speaking of fake news here, everyone is, is throwing uh, a fit. I mean, we've had it in in the Arab world for a long time now, and I, I don't know. Uh, how you address it. I mean, when you tell these clerics, when you tell uh, these right. extremists, when you read them these tweets, what's, what's the... Well, what, I, I, and I was, as we were talking about this earlier today, but what I thought was interesting, so I, I didn't really have access to the Saudis, so I just followed them on Twitter, but I did have access to Salafists in other countries, so I went to northern Lebanon, to the Tripoli area, where they all are, and um, I started reading back to them their tweets that they had tweeted in Arabic. And the, at least three Salafists said, I didn't tweet that, somebody else did. <laughs> and so what's interesting, and you know, we can, in another conversation, get into the sort of the mm -hmm. power of the internet and social media, but because it, I think it, it encourages people to be more aggressive than they would be normally, yeah. um, and to create more hostility. But, um, they were trying to convince me that they didn't tweet that. And so, um, you know, we start, and then finally, it was one particular Salafist who, I said, okay, so if you didn't tweet this, just answer a question. Do you think the Shia are real Muslims? And he said, no. So, 
you know, if you, if you sort of, I think that the, the danger of, of Twitter, in addition to a lot of other dangers, is that it gives people the license to be much more aggressive. And if they had to confront to strangers like me or to anybody else outside of their communities what they were really saying, they want to retract it. Mm -hmm. But once it's out there, well, you I'm, know. I'm glad you, you're out of that meeting safe and uh, <laughs> sound. But you know, one last question. We do have a new administration coming uh, to town. What we heard, you know, what we both heard from President-elect Trump uh, so far on the Middle East, uh, do you think there is anything different here? Uh, you know, what I've read over, you know, for example, his statement uh, after meeting uh, Sisi, mm -hmm. there, is, there is no mention of human rights or uh, any form of oppression in, in, in Egypt. Uh, there is a laser focus on counterterrorism, it seems. And there is an interest in pushing Iran back uh, in the region, or at least that's what we understand from uh, the few uh, nominations he, he, he has made. Is that still realistic uh, today, given, as you say in this book here, how much influence Iran has had today in, in, in Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon, and even in new places like Yemen? So what, what, what do you expect from the Trump uh, administration? Uh, and looking at the region, where do you, what, what do you see it looking like maybe in, in four years? Well, I think it's dangerous for anyone to try to predict anything about the Trump administration. But having said that, um, it does seem that there will be some attempt to deal with Iran in a different way of course, than President Obama did. Um, and, but I just don't know how effective that will be. I mean, I think that short of having a direct effect on the hardliners in Iran and the Revolutionary Guards, which is impossible, right? And I think that what people don't understand about Iran is that there are many Iranian states. I mean, there's the state of the foreign ministry and the presidency. There's the state of the hardliners and the Revolutionary Guards, which is part of the military apparatus. And so you're dealing with many different states. Mm -hmm. And this is why the nuclear negotiations, which were with the presidency and the foreign ministry, of course, approved by Khamenei, but that, that process does not have an effect on what Iran does on the ground in all the countries you mentioned. There's no connection between these two things necessarily, except that the nuclear deal has provided Iran with cash reserves ability to sell its oil that presumably could aid their military apparatus in all these countries. But I don't, I mean, I think that if the Trump administration does try to do something um, that, to try to minimize Iran's influence in the region, that's a good thing. I just don't know if it's possible. I mean, the dynamics of the conflicts, especially the in Iraq, of, I mean, it, they're, I, I don't know, I ask myself this question, how are you gonna counter Iran when you're actually providing uh, Air Force support for uh, groups that are funded uh, by, Iran. by Iran. I mean, I don't know, is it me or does it seem little? No, no, it's, uh, and that's the, I mean, and that's part of all the complexities. I mean, obviously, you know, the United States has basically 
endorsed two Shia-led governments in Iraq mm -hmm. that are working closely with Iran. So that's sort of one situation. But then in Syria, the United States is you know, against Assad's government, which is supported by Iran. So, and that's why the nuclear negotiations were a very complicated process. And, and some people in the administration even said, and I don't know if this is true or not because I've never worked in government, but that one of the reasons the United States never attacked Syria at a crucial time was because the Obama administration didn't want to disrupt the negotiations on the nuclear deal. In so there are, so these, sorry. In 2013, in 2013. with the red line. Right. Um, so these competing forces and interests make obviously US policy in the region very complicated and, 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 and very conflicting. But I mean, you don't just... see this sectarian uh, war, this sectarian uh, gap, you know, healing itself in, Unfortunately, in, in, in four I, years. I don't think so. Uh, well, on that not so optimistic <laughs> note, <laughs> we'll uh, turn it over to, to questions uh, from the audience. So I think someone will uh, bring the mic. Let's start uh, over here. Identify. Yeah, and please identify yourself. And we're actually, I should have mentioned this half an hour ago, the hashtag is new sectarianism on Twitter, if you're tweeting. Okay, so my name is Mohammed. I'm with the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for the interesting conversation and for this interesting book. I'm looking forward to read it. And my question actually is about the, the title of this book. You mentioned new sectarianism and the repairs of uh, Shia-Sunni uh, divide. Because for me, uh, sectarian politics and the, the Shia-Sunni divide has been always there, has been always like a, a, you know, a driving factor for, for the politics, not only between the different, the different countries within the region, but even with a lot of local communities. So what is new about this sectarianism? What is new about like this Sunni-Shia divide given the situation after, after the, the Arab Spring? Thank you. Thank you. I, I think that what's new is, um, well, first of all, the point I mentioned earlier, which is that there are many more competing messengers and interpreters of how Islam should be practiced, um, which has increased the violence. So, you know, in the 90s, for example, when I wrote a book about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, um, if you wanted to know what was being said at the mosque, you went to the mosque and you stood outside the mosque to listen to the Friday prayer. And basically, even though the message, even though the sermons in the mosque certainly were not uniformed, there were certain trends within the religious community of the message that was being conveyed. Um, there were more radical sheikhs than others. There were sort of self-appointed sheikhs, as you know, Mohammed, because you're from Egypt. If you go to neighborhoods in Egypt, anybody is a sheikh. I mean, he doesn't have to have a, he doesn't have to have a, four, and it's not just Egypt. I don't want to isolate Egypt, but I'm just saying. So I call them freelance sheikhs, right? Um, so that phenomenon really did started in the 80s and 90s. But what's happened is if you can magnify that like a thousand times, okay? So that to me is what's changed, that there are many messengers, many interpreters of how Islam should be practiced. And although this is a very controversial point, one could argue that ISIS is promoting a certain practice of the faith that 99% of Muslims don't agree with, but the point is, is that they do use the text to refer to 
hadith to refer to the Quran to justify their actions. I mean, it's Baghdadi who says Islam is a religion of the sword. Most Muslims, of course, you know, overwhelmingly, of course, don't subscribe to this belief. But so there are many competing messages and messengers, and I think that that's what's changed, and that's what has escalated the whole divide and created more violence. Because, and, and the other thing I think to keep in mind, and, and um, I didn't mention this before, but you know, in the old days, if you want to look at Egypt in the 90s as an example, there was much more control of the religious message by state-sponsored religious institutions. And the state, the Egyptians started losing control of the message in the 70s. But even in the 90s, there was a lot more state control over what was said from the, from the pulpit, what was said on the street. That is, is evaporated. I mean, the state has a lot less control, with the exception of a country like Morocco, mm -hmm. from what is being, I guess, projected to be Islamic practice. It, and, and it does seem, I mean, you know, having grown up in the Lebanese Civil War, for example, that every kind of limitation we had is off now. I mean, and, and, and that's the, uh, the new level of brutality in the attacks, whether, you know, in suicide uh, uh, bombings or what we saw at the cathedral uh, yesterday is just, the, there is nothing almost uh, haram anymore in, in, in that right. sense. So it's a free for all. I mean, I think that's what's changed. Gonna go here, then we're gonna go. Thank you. Uh, I'm Rafi Danziger, an advisor to APAC. If I may, two quick questions. Number one, some people say that the Iranian-backed Shiite militias are just as cruel as ISIS, except they don't put it on YouTube. So do you agree with that? And if yes, is evidence? And number two, it seems that so far the only Arab country that actually seems to move into a democracy is Tunisia, where it all started. Do you think it's uh, sustainable in Tunisia? Thank you. Um, I'm glad you raised the points about the uh, the point about the Shia militias. I write somewhat extensively in the book on the in the first chapter that's placed in Najaf on the Shia militias. I do think they're very very violent, and um, I've watched a lot of videos of, for example, when they went into Tikrit and other parts of Iraq where they burn people, hang people from lamp posts. Um, I saw people being executed at gunpoint, Sunnis. Um, and, and what's more important, getting back to sort of the, 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 conversation, the question that Mohammed raised, is that um, some of these militias were created by a fatwa that Ayatollah Sistani issued, calling on upon Shia and Sunni, not just Shia, but if you read the Arabic, Sunni and Shia, to rise up against ISIS. And some of these militias were formed as a result of this fatwa. So this is a cleric issuing a religious decree to try to combat extremism. But what happened is that once he encouraged people and called them to arms, he couldn't control what happened later. So they no longer listened to Sistani. Now they're listening to the, I'm, I'm simplifying it. But to some degree, now their commanders are the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, not Sistani. So I think that that's a, a good example of not being able to control the message, that once you unleash something, you, you don't know what the consequence is going to be. And yes, they are very violent. 
Um, and I have every reason to believe that the videos I've seen were legitimate. I mean, I checked, I checked with people. I, they were given to me by legitimate sources. But, and they're on the internet. I mean, they're not just given to me, but some, some of these videos are on the internet. Um, about Tunisia, I'm not an expert on Tunisia or North Africa. Um, I do think that what's happened there, just generally speaking, is very positive. And, um, but, I, but, but when we look at the success stories, you have to place them in the context of the region. So one of the reasons that Tunisia, I think, has been more successful than in terms of the role of the Islamist movement than Egypt is that they compromised with the government. Mm -hmm. So they knew when to participate in politics, when not to participate in politics. It wasn't an all or nothing proposition. That wasn't the case in Egypt. The government decided, I think incorrectly, that they were going to oust a democratically elected government, which was the Muslim Brotherhood, and create a military dictatorship. And so I don't think that gives us hope for a success story in Egypt compared to Tunisia, where there was much more of a democratic process. And, and was it also, I mean, because of the soft transition uh, that happened, but how much did the education programs that the Tunisian government invested in the country also uh, help in this? I mean, right. No, no, and I, th well, the, the educational system, as far as I know, has always been much more, um, I guess, or shall we say, less polarizing the, than the Egyptian educational system um, mm -hmm. in terms of Middle East history, in terms of how Islam is sort of taught and portrayed. So, you know, you're talking about completely different, a completely different context. And I think that that's why the outcome is different, in, in addition to a lot of other reasons. But I'm certainly not a Tunisian expert, so I'm just sort of giving you my general impressions. And, and yet, we do see that the highest number of uh, jihadists, or used to be the highest number, number of flowing to Syria, were coming from uh, Tunis. Uh, but, but that's also, you know, I mean, there were good signs, but the element of radicalization that was also happening underground. Uh, in Tunis, it's me. It, it does exist, funded by the outside, uh, through schools, through other aspects. You do talk about in this book and other models, but did exist in Tunis, but not to the level that I think, uh, you know, produced Syria or uh, or, Iraq. or Iraq. Yeah. So we're gonna go. Uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, Philip Sedlak, and I'm, uh, I guess, a health communicator. Um, I have a question about the East African literal, uh, and let's, let's skip the area from, say, Djibouti to the Kenya border and go from Kenya all the way down to Lamu, Mombasa, uh, the Tanzanian coast, Dar es Salaam, uh, Zanzibar, and uh, the western part of Madagascar. Uh, do you have, and I, I know the area fairly well, and I know that there, when I was there, there were, there were Sunnis, there were Shias, they were, this was in the 70s, they were all living in peace, uh, but the, the, the ethnic origins of these people, there were Boras, there were Baluchis, there were Sunni, uh, there were Sunnis, and there were Shias from Yemen, there were Omanis, and it was very mixed. And it's an area of considerable friction on the East African coast. I wonder if you have any ideas about what's going to happen there. <laughs> Thanks. 
No, I, I, I can't speak to that because I don't research that part of the world. But the only thing I will say that's somewhat related to your question is um, if you're interested in polling on these issues in other parts of the world, in Africa, how the Shia view the Sunnis and vice versa, the Pew Forum has done excellent polling on these issues and the, and the, the, the geographic um, sort of, the geographic span of, of their polling is huge. And they did pull in, Af in, in parts of Africa. And what they found, which I found to be really fascinating as it regards Africa, is they, so they do the polling over time. And they ask the same questions, obviously, because you want to have consistency. But what they found is that as the Saudis became, developed more of a presence in parts of Africa, okay, when in, before the Saudis had any real presence in Africa, when they polled um, Sunnis and they asked them, what are your views of the Shia? They didn't know what a Shia was. But as the Saudis became more influential in some African countries, when they polled later, they got a much more negative response from the Sunnis toward the Shia. So again, this speaks to sort of the perceptions on the ground of state-driven sectarian kind of discourse. Um, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. But I'm sorry, I can't speak specifically about Africa because I don't research that part of the world. And for the first time last year, actually, uh, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, in his, in his speech, talked about uh, Nigeria. He, he was mm -hmm. uh, messaging, uh, actually, paying condolences to a Shia cleric that died there. So it's, it'll be very interesting to watch uh, what Geneve talked about and a more vocal uh, Hezbollah uh, effort, role, whatever you want to call it, in, in the continent. Yeah. I'm going to go here. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Uh, Mohammed Al-Shwaiter, a Fulbright uh, fellow from Yemen. I have two questions. Uh, first of all, I mean, you mentioned the new sectarianism, and uh, it's like what Fukuyama mentioned, that the Shia-Sunni conflict, it uh, erupted just recently, if you agree with that or not. So what's make that this new sectarianism more, I mean, aggressive? Who is using who? Politicians been been uh, used by sectarianism or clerks, or they are playing, I mean, or versa versa. So who's using who? Um, a second question, if you have, a, I mean, applying this with the conflict in Yemen, is it, how is that linked as a sectarian conflict? Thank you. Do you want to answer? No. Okay. Um, well, I think, again, Yemen is a perfect example of um, an opportunity. Okay, so in the beginning, as you know better than me, um, the Houthis weren't necessarily backed by Iran, right? But as time went on and as the, Syria, the, the war developed and deteriorated, um, there was an opportunity for Iran to become involved. And there was an opportunity for the Houthis to capitalize on Iran's willingness to become involved. And so, I, and I think that that sort of goes back to what we were talking about Iran. I mean, I think that in this town in particular, people have a tendency to view Iran as this aggressor state that is going to launch a nuclear war, that's going to invade 
this country or that country. And in fact, if you look at the history of modern Iran, their strategy is much more complicated. It's, they're not an aggressor state necessarily. They're a state that capitalizes on opportunity. The same was true in Iraq in the beginning, if you look in the beginning. The same is true in Bahrain. Iran was not involved in the uprising that, that first occurred in 2011, but what's happened since then, and US intelligence reports have, bear, have confirmed this, that some of the more radical youth groups that developed as a result of the Bahraini government are now either accepting directly or indirectly aid from Iran or Hezbollah. Some of them now are located in Lebanon. So to answer your question, I think that you know a lot of these conflicts don't, the way that they have ended up today isn't the way that they began. And I think Yemen is a perfect example of that. About that. Uh, you know, since we're short on time, let's take. Uh, well, we, have, we have 10 minutes. We have 10 minutes. Uh, OK, yeah. So we'll, uh, we're going to take, we're going to take uh, two questions at a time. So Russia, actually, a gentleman here then, Russia. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Kambi, but I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And do you see, I mean, these, these are a proxy war basically between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And they are fighting everywhere in the Muslim world. Do you see any compromising point for these two countries, given that Iran has been relatively stable because Mullah have been there for almost more than 30 years. And Saudi Arabia is very stable in terms of as long as American interests are there, Saudi regime is going to stay there. So what is that make them so insecure and keep getting the Shia Sunni killed all over in the Muslim world? Do you see any compromising point between these two nations that could help them to calm Muslim world? Thanks. Russia? Yeah. Thank you. My name is Rasha Ilas. I'm a journalist, and I spent a decade reporting in the Middle East, most recently in Syria. Uh, I'd like to speak to uh, the point you mentioned, Geneva, about uh, you know different uh, different characters on the stage trying to interpret Islam and sort of a competition to own the narrative on Islam. And I've certainly seen that firsthand in Syria and and throughout the region. Uh, but there's you know, there's also the power of money and arms, certainly in Syria, and that's coming from uh, one interpretation of Islam, or at least two, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and those are really the sources of the proxy wars in Syria and arguably the source of many conflicts throughout the region. Uh, my question is, what do you think the U.S. Should do about this. I mean, there, you know, is it sort of reminiscent of the U.S. aligning itself with Al Qaeda back in the Cold War and then having it come back to to bite us in the behind, or uh, is it sort of uh, no, let let the two sides sort of uh, uh, fight each other out in a war of attrition? Uh, who cares? Let's just be cynical as long as this doesn't spill over into the West. Excellent tough, questions. Yeah. Tough questions. Um, in terms of Saudi and Iran, the one common denominator is I don't think the United States can influence either country <laughs> in terms of what it does in the region. And um, the, when the Arab uprisings began and the Saudis had just gone into Bahrain, at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was having small meetings with people who know something about the Arab world in her office 
and I was in a meeting of maybe seven to ten people, and we asked her, well, what is the United States going to do about Saudi Arabia? They just went into Bahrain, and she said, there's nothing we can do about the Saudis. Next question. <laughs> so so I, I think that that's sort of the case. And again, you know, I've never been in government. I have no idea what the United States should or should not do. But I think that what we've learned since the Arab uprisings began is that the United States' role is limited. And the leverage is limited. I mean, what leverage does the United States have really over Iran in terms of preventing Revolutionary Guards, Al-Quds Force, from operating in Syria, Lebanon? You know, where, I mean, I just don't know what the leverage is. And what the Iranians did, and this is, again, somewhat of a controversial statement, but what the Iranians did throughout the nuclear negotiations is that they were very strategic to make sure that the negotiations were only about the nuclear issue. Okay, and they never, the negotiations, they made clear that was one of the conditions from the beginning. It wasn't going to be about Syria. It wasn't going to be about Iraq. Um, they were, it was confined only to the nuclear issue. And that was very smart on their part. Now, the Rouhani people would say privately, and I was in some private meetings with Rouhani people, wink, wink, the next conversation is going to be about Syria. But I knew that would never happen um, because it's not in their interest. So the way that they tried to convince, I think, some Americans that if there, if there was going to be a nuclear deal and all parties could agree on the conditions and the terms of the agreement, that then there would be a some sort of negotiating process in which they would offer concessions on Syria. But of course, as we've seen, that hasn't happened. Do you see, to the gentleman's question, any uh, opportunity for a rapprochement between Saudi uh, and Iran anytime soon? I don't know. I mean, there would have to be interest by both sides, and I don't see what those interests could be, because they're both benefiting from the, the rivalry. And you know, so what benefit really is there in concessions? Um, I mean, and and. You know, to Russia's question, covering the Syrian war from here, we did hear at the beginning from uh, you know, one U.S. defense official that perhaps there is a silver lining of Al Qaeda and Hezbollah fighting uh, in Syria. I mean, that was in 2013. Uh, I'd like to find the same official again and ask the same question. See how uh, silver <laughs> that lining still is. And we had one question over there. Last yeah, so I'm Kawa from uh, Kurdistan 24 for Media and Research. Uh, can you bring the mic closer? Yes. Uh, I'm Kawa from K24 for Media and Research. My question uh, is about the role of the Kurds. By talking about all of the issues and the struggles between the religious parties and these countries and the influences of countries like Iran, Saudi, Turkey to Iraq, especially in Iraq. Uh, the Kurds played a good role in uh, keeping uh, the stability and the stabilized uh, between uh, the Shias and Sunnis in Iraq for years after the defeat of Saddam Hussein. I, I need Kurds. my question, the Kurds, yes. Uh, my question is, uh, how far uh, do you believe that the Kurds, uh, in, in spite of facing all of their own troubles, fights against ISIS and the economic crisis and all of that, they did uh, that role in the right way. And what is the missing part of the Kurds on their role to uh, keep that goes on in Iraq especially? 
Thank you. Um, I, I don't really think I can speak, um, you know, in an informed way about the Kurds. The only thing I will say is that, you know, the, in, in Iraq, I mean, basically, the Kurds have a de facto state. I mean, that's pretty clear at this point um, as part of, you know, as a result of everything that's happened in Iraq. Um, and I think that the Kurds, if you look at the Iranian Kurds, I mean, the Kurds have been victims everywhere. <laughs> Um, and Iran is a perfect, a perfect place where they have been victims. And so it's been very difficult for the Kurds, say, in Iran to fight for you know, equal rights um, with the rest of the population. Um, when Mohammed Hatami was president, the Kurds had a lot more power and they were um, empowered by his administration. They were allowed, for example, to have their own languages in schools. Um, he appointed Kurdish officials that headed uh, Kurdish majority areas of Iran, which was quite has been quite taboo, but um, I mean I, but I can't really speak to you know what their deficiencies are if that's your question because I, I'm not qualified to do that. But do you see I mean the Kurds they are Sunnis themselves, right. uh, them avoiding getting sucked into the Sunni Shia uh, war? How did it? Uh, well, I think we've already seen that. I mean, you know, I mean, the Kurds, when Iran sort of came to the rescue of the Kurds, right, when ISIS was at the doorstep, I mean, you already saw this kind of strange alliance, um, not alliance, that's putting too much of a point on it, but you already saw some sort of cooperation. And the Kurds were very thankful to the Iranians that they came to their rescue. And they were sort of asked, well, what about Sunni states? <laughs> Why didn't they come to our rescue? And so, um, so that's where, you know, as I said, remember opportunity. You know, the Iranians offer opportunities and, and unlikely bedfellows sometimes accept them. <laughs> yep, well, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day. And please enjoy the rest of the day after buying a copy of uh, Geneve's book <laughs> outside. It'll make a great read on the holidays. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you.